Good morning, I'm Patty. Nehemiah 4, 14 through 23. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is your great and awesome and who is great and awesome and will fight for your brothers and you fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that the plot was known to us and that our God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held their spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each of us kept our weapons at his, our right hand. Thank you, Patty. That is the mother of my beloved daughter-in-law, Elizabeth. And um, let's pray. Lord, let your word be powerful to us this morning. Lord, we wanna hear it, we wanna have it do its work in us. And these are days where we need to learn how to fight the good fight, the fight for our homes and for our marriages and for our children, for each other. So speak, Lord, to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So. Real quickly before we jump in, um, Operation Christmas Child, I had a unique interaction with that ministry. I was in Russia on a evangelism team over there one summer, interestingly. And uh, one of the things we did, we went to a children's hospital uh, on the outskirts of the city of Vladimir. And we went down there just to minister to the kids and. And, uh, and so we went in and, and we started ministering. And one of the uh, doctors there said, hey, we've got a bunch of gifts that have been here for months and 
we, we just haven't seen, you know, really had the moment to, to want to pass them out. Would you guys be interested in passing them out? So we went down into a, a first floor storage room and there was, oh, it had to be about a hundred or more Operation Christmas Child boxes. So we took those boxes and we went to the rooms and we, we you know, gave them to the children. These kids, some of them were like burn victims where, you know, two thirds of their body, I mean, they, they were in great pain, um, you know, amputees. I mean, some real severe, severe issues with these kids and they were suffering greatly. But they began to open or we would help them open these boxes and they, there would be toys and, uh, you know, and various things and they just lit up. And in addition to the opening of these, these gift boxes, we were able to share the gospel with these kids. And we led dozens of children to the Lord. Not only children, but nurses and a doctor came to Christ that day. And it was really through the ministry of Operation Christmas Child. That was kind of the catalyst for the work that God did. So I'm just saying, hey, if you're, if you're putting together a box, do it, go for it. Good for you, good on you. If you're not and you'd like to, uh, man, do it. It's a great ministry. All right, Nehemiah, the wall is now half built and there was tons of rubble though everywhere. And, and there's discouragement happening in the people, as is often the case when you get into the middle of an endeavor, of a project, they were discouraged. Not only that, but four enemy peoples, uh, they formed an alliance against the Jews, much like we see happening right in front of us today on the earth. And they, they formed an alliance and they sowed confusion and they threatened violence to God's people, the Jews. Well-meaning people, people who weren't uh, living in or right around Jerusalem, they came and they said, hey, you guys need to know, we're hearing it from all over the place, that man, these people are out to get you. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and the, you know, the, uh, the Arabs and the Samaritans, they're all out to get you. Man, it's the word on the street is everywhere, it's happening. And so you should, you should pull back, you can come hang with us out in the country, you know. Try to talk them out of continuing with what God had called them to do. There will always come daunting challenges and opposition when we undertake the God-given mission that he's, that he's called us to. We'll have to contend with discouragement. It's a, it's a part of the deal. And there will be no shortage of voices trying to, and maybe even voices in our own head, trying to talk us into abandoning the call. And it's always been that way. It's always been that way. Flashback of, oh, about a thousand years before Nehemiah here, 444 BC. And you have the Hebrews reaching the edge of the promised land. 
And the Lord told Moses, hey, send 12 spies into the promised land. Check them out, have them check it out for 40 days and then come back with a report. So they did, 12 spies go into the land and they roam around secretly for 40 days. They come back with giant grapes and pomegranates and figs and they're all, all 12 of them are like, man, it's a fruitful land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of the spies said, but there's big dudes in there. There's giants in the land. And the cities that they have, they're fortified. They've got walls. And, and we, can't, we can't take those big guys. They'll rout us. They'll beat us. Caleb and Joshua, the two guys, said, wait a minute. We need to go in right now. We're more than capable of beating these guys. God's called us to this. He, he's for us in this. He's promised this land to us. But the 10 spies convinced the people to turn away. And thus began the 40 years in the wilderness. There will always be people or even just that internal voice trying to talk you out of the thing that God has called you to do. So Nehemiah does something wise and strategic. Uh, I'm gonna back up to verse 13, where Nehemiah says he stationed the people by their clans, that's their, their family, their blood, their kin, with swords and spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. And then it says in verse 17, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other hand. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side where he built. In open carry city, as we mentioned last week. In 1865, Charles Spurgeon launched a magazine and he took the title of the magazine from Nehemiah and he called the magazine The Sword and the Trowel the sword and the trowel. And he was basically putting a cross with that title. He was saying that the Christian life is made up of building and battling. Building and battling. We build the church, we battle the enemies, and there are many. The Bible is filled with, with uh, verbiage and imagery of the Christian life as a battle and a fight. The moment you become a follower of Jesus, you enlist in that battle. You enlist in God's army. And we embark at that point on the greatest adventure, the greatest endeavor known to mankind. So Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were called. So you have eternal life. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have it. But now lay hold of it. Live it out. Paul would say in, in uh, uh, where is it? Colossians. Work it out. The, 
eternal life that's in you. It needs to start to come out. It needs to start to shape you and your life and your character and your attitudes and your actions. For most people, this, this epic battle, and there's a lot of things that we battle, but this epic battle, it's waged in the context of a family. Merriam-Webster defines family, quote, as the basic unit in society, traditionally consisting of two parents rearing their children. A family. In our passage, we have Nehemiah saying to God's people, fight for your family. Fight for your children. Fight for your spouse. Fight for your home. This is a needed word for us, church, this morning. I'm convinced of it. We who are living in a culture that wars against the good design of God, <laughs> that rebels against the goodness of God. We live in a time when raising a family is disparaged and it's, it's thought to be restrictive and inhibiting and, and, and you know, it inhibits a person from pursuing their dreams and finding true fulfillment. There will be nothing more fulfilling in your life than entering into a covenant relationship with another human, than creating other humans with your covenant human and then raising those little humans in the Lord and eventually releasing them, unleashing them in the earth. And then, if you're super blessed, when those little humans that you create or God in you become big humans, and then they find their human and begin to have little humans, whoa, then your cup is officially overflowing at that point. That's called grandparenting. Now listen, if you're single, does not mean you're second class or anything of the sort. In fact, Paul, who was single, he said there were some significant advantages to being single. So take advantage. But most people will get married, which is God's design, is that most people would get married. So here's the question I'm going to put on the table this morning. We're probably going to only get so far, we'll, we'll do a part two to this next week. But how do we fight the good fight of faith for our families? How do we do it? How do we fight for our families? If that's the, the rallying cry. Now, many of us fight with our families, and we're probably pretty good at that. But we wanna, we wanna turn a corner and fight for our families. We wanna champion our families. Well, the first thing, and we'll probably get maybe two or three truths to hang on to this morning, but the first one is we fight with humility and courage. Humility and courage. Marriage is, is it's two sinful humans joining their lives together in covenant and becoming one. They live together, they sleep together, they join their bodies together sexually, they do banking together, they plan together, they play together, they take vacations together, they parent together, they're in sickness and health together. 
And so, how many of you know that when you get two sinful human beings together that have that much together time, that there's gonna be some issues? Okay, there's just gonna be some issues to deal with. Stuff that, that you could maybe hide from most people in your life, you're not gonna be able to hide in your marriage, at least not for very long. And so it's gonna come out and it's gonna have to be dealt with one way or another. It's gonna create tension at times, flaws and weaknesses and irritability and resentment and pride and sin and so on. That's, that's just Tuesday for me. But you, you say, well, that doesn't sound like much fun. Well, you are right. <laughs> Contending, you know, with your own stupidity and sin is, is a lot of things, but fun is not one of them. So, but it is useful and it is beneficial. As a matter of fact, I would say it's hugely important. So David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 67, he said this, and this is such a great statement. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray from you. I was talking with somebody, having coffee with somebody earlier this week, and, and we were just talking about life and walking with the Lord and, you know, where we've come in life and our marriages and, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I said to my friend, I said, listen, if it weren't for the difficulties and the challenges, I don't know, I don't know where I'd be. I mean, I think I would be off the rails David says, in effect, before I had personal difficulties and hard things to deal with, I meandered and I went off the rails. Afflictions and challenges keep me heading in the right direction. Paul echoed that sentiment in the New Testament. Our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. Or, or the New Living puts it this way, our present troubles are small, and they won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So, so our suffering, our afflictions are serving us. Romans 5 would say suffering produces for you. It's a producer in your life. Marriage is a glory-producing relationship. And if we humble ourselves and face our sins squarely, grace is dispensed, growth in Christ-likeness happens, and our life um, is, is increased and enriched by the Lord through that process. Let, let me give you an illustration of how, how this has played out in my life, and it's played out, you know, it's a repeating story to one, you know, in one way or another. So most people, um, to try and have some sort of priorities list in their life. If it's not written down, they have it sort of in their mind. But if you're, a, if you're a believer, at the top of the list of priorities in life, number one is God, right? It's the Lord. If, if it's not the Lord, then you are, by definition, an idolater. Sorry. 
and then God is first, and, and, and then perhaps it's uh, the family, and then church, and then career, and then hobbies, or whatever. And, and so you occasionally will assess your life, or maybe your spouse points something out to you and say, hey man, you, you've been uh, uh, working a lot. You haven't been in church for a couple of weeks, and man, maybe you need to look at your priorities. They're getting a little jumbled up, right? So you reassess. I don't have a priority list. If I did have a priority list, it would just have one line on it. It would say God first. God first in my family. God first in my church membership and involvement. God first in my career. God first in my hobbies. God first. That's it. Pam and I had been married for four years-ish, maybe five, and I was now youth pastoring at our church in Southern California, and I was so fired up about ministry, I could hardly stand it, and I went hard. I mean, I pushed hard. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night youth services, winter camps, summer camps, surf camps, mission trips, and and. Pam tried to talk to me about how hard I was going and how she was feeling neglected. And I would try and encourage her and I would promise to spend more time with her and our little girl, Katie. We just had one, one kid at that time. And, and so I, I would, you know, talk and yeah, I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna get more time. And, but nothing changed. I said it, but I didn't do it. And in my mind, I'm serving the Lord. I am, I am reaching young people with the gospel and, and, and lives are being changed through my ministry. And then it happened. I was at a surf camp in the San Clemente area and a bunch of high school kids camping on the beach and having a great time, and I called home to check in. This is pre-cell phone, so you have to go to a pay phone. I, I called, and Pam said to me, first words out of her mouth, your baby girl and I won't be here when you get home. And I'm like, what, what, why, what, what's going on? And she said, I've been trying to tell you for months that things are not okay in our marriage. What I say goes in one ear and out the other, and your ministry to me feels like a mistress. So we won't be here when you get home. My world was shaken so hard. It was all I could do to just crawl into the church van by myself and lay on the floor and weep and weep and weep. And I then began to cry out to God. I went home and my wife and my little baby girl weren't there 
as promised. We eventually talked and prayed and sorted things out, but the Lord spoke to me in the depth of my affliction. And it was basically the truth that comes in a couple places, but 1 Timothy 3.5 is one of them. If a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? So, so fatness, if you, if you don't take care of your marriage, you don't get to take care of my people. If you don't have your family put together, you can't have the ministry. You see, the, the Lord was first in my life, he really was, but he wasn't first in my family. I wasn't loving my wife like Christ loved the church. And so we fight for our families, we do it humbly and we do it courageously. And I say courageously, not, not that it was courageous in the sense of, you know, bawling like a baby on the you know, floor of a van, of a church van. But I say courageously because it takes a certain amount of courage to actually, actually confront your sins. A lot of guys, I'll, I'll tell you this, a lot of husbands will be super quick to apologize to their wives, but it's the apology of a coward. It's done to keep the peace. It's vague, it's broad, it's pathetic, and I've been there and done that. It's a selfish attempt to get the boat to stop rocking. Listen, husbands, men, don't ever allow yourself to apologize for something you did not do. That is cowardly. That is manipulative. Don't ever make vague, nondescript apologies that are nothing more than an attempt to manipulate your spouse. That's, that's just coward stuff. So we fight for our families humbly and courageously, but secondly, we embrace our role, our role. I've gotta say the S word. Apologize in advance, submission. Submission. I need, I need, to, I need you to allow me to plow on this for, for just a few short minutes here there is God-given roles in our families. They're not optional. They are part of God's creative design. So when you hear wives submit to your husband, that's not a suggestion. When, as we'll see in just a moment, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, it says that Jesus is the head of the husband. The husband is the head of the wife. That's just a fact. So, so you have one, one of basically two choices when it comes to this whole subject. 
Number one, you know, you, you are a believer, you love the Lord God, you are powerful and wise to, to the degree that, you know, you created the, the universe so amazingly, it's so just superbly fine-tuned for life. The earth maintains just the right distance from the sun so that we aren't too close, that we'd burn up, or too far away, that we'd freeze to death. Thank you, God, your design is amazing. Or Lord, you know, thank you that, that you gave the earth just the right amount of gravity to keep our feet on the ground, but not enough to crush us or, or to, for us to fly off into space. You're, you're so good and wise and amazing in your creation. But Lord, this submission thing, are you crazy? There's that response, or the second way to respond is, Lord, when there's a conflict between what you say and what culture says, I'm with you. Let God be true and every man a liar. Feminism, and we're in whatever wave we're on now, has by and large sold our culture a bill of goods, a big whopping lie. A bunch of unhappy, miserable women have convinced you that submission is a patriarchal tool of control and marriage itself is an oppressive, you know, it's oppressive to women. So we have passages and not one, but let me just read a couple. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's a good fit. 1 Peter 3.1, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them don't obey the word, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Submit, hupotasso in the Greek, a military term that means to voluntarily place yourself beneath someone in rank. It's about order. It has nothing to do with value. God is not saying that men are better than women or more valuable than women or any such thing. As a matter of fact, we have so much scripture to the contrary. But in the army, listen, in the army, you may have an enlisted guy or gal, say a, say a battle-tested sergeant that's been in for 10 years or whatever and, and you know, served well, and then you have a lieutenant or whatever that comes fresh out of school and hasn't been in battle, hasn't served a single day on the field, and so you've got the tough seasoned sergeant and the wet behind the ears lieutenant, who is more valuable? I would argue the sergeant.
But when the wet behind the ears lieutenant gives the 10-year veteran sergeant an order, what does that sergeant do? He salutes and says, yes, sir. Why? Because if he didn't, the chain of command would be broken. And that's where everything falls apart. It has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with order. 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So notice that the head, it doesn't say the head of a girlfriend is her boyfriend or the head of women or men, right? It's the head of a wife is her husband, her husband. If submission was a, was a value issue, then Jesus would be less valuable than the Father, right? Because it says that, that God is the, the head of Jesus. And nothing could be further from the truth that Jesus is less valuable. He's part of the triune God. In addition, notice that the verse doesn't say the head of a wife should be her husband. It says that he is. He is. It is the reality of God's created order. It's like gravity, it just is. And so, so what do we do? Well, what do we do? Gravity, okay, we you give an example. If you come over to the Fadness house and you go up the staircase, you will arrive at the, uh, the balcony there on the second floor, and on the balcony, you will notice there is a, there is a, uh, a uh, banister, or a, uh, not a fence, what do you call that thing? Railing, thank you. I didn't bring all my words this morning, I left a few. So, there's a railing there, why? Because gravity just is, and we respect it. We respect gravity. The headship of the husband just is. It's a part of God's created order. Is it any wonder then that Paul says in Ephesians 5.33, let the wife then see that she respects her husband. I mean, if you, if you want to be flowing with God, walking in harmony with the Lord and with his plan and desire, then see that you respect God's created order and design in your marriage. We, we ignore God's design to our own detriment and peril. And let me just give you a, just a, a hint here. Reality is undefeated. It always wins. And this is not a small issue. This is not some, you know, sideline issue that we talk about every now and then, you know. This is, this is life. If you're a married person, this is on the daily. It goes all the way back to the garden. 
Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Eve in the garden, deceives her into eating the forbidden fruit. Eve then goes to her husband, gives him some of that forbidden fruit to eat, which he did. God pays them a visit, says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, well, I was hiding from you because I was naked. And God's like, you've been naked your whole life. Um, (laughs) You ate of the fruit that I told you not to eat, didn't you, Adam? And then Adam throws not only his wife, but God under the bus. Well, it's the woman you gave me. At its core, the the fall of humanity in the garden is, is the turning upside down of God's created order. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That is, we were in Adam, genetically in Adam. Theologians call him the federal head of humanity. And you read Romans 5 and there's a second federal head. His name is Jesus the man from heaven who rescues us from death. But isn't it interesting that the Bible doesn't say that sin came into the world through a couple? It says that sin came through one man. Why? Because Adam was head. The order, God's created order before the fall, God creates Adam, the man. He then, from Adam's body from substance, takes substance from Adam's body and creates the woman. The man, the woman have authority over the beasts and so on. So, so God, man, woman, beast. But what happened after the fall? A beast deceives the woman. A serpent deceives the woman, thus exercising dominion over her. The man submitted to the woman when she offered him the fruit. The man eats in order that he might be become God. The whole thing flipped upside down. The thing about God's created order is that we we have agency. We, We move with him or not. Ladies, the thing about submission is that it cannot be demanded of you. It can't, it has to be offered by you. Someone may think, well, I've lost respect for my husband a long time ago. There's nothing about him that is worthy of respect. Or, I don't love her anymore. We, we, we just stay together for the kids' sake. I've heard that more times than I want to remember. There, there is a secret. It's not a secret, but it's a secret because not enough people put this into practice. A secret to the Christian life that many people just don't seem to be aware of. So C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, a brilliant, brilliant book, He basically said, and I'll I'll just quote this, uh, quote, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. 
act as if you did. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Now, he goes on to say the reverse of that is true. Quote, the Germans perhaps at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. So, so listen, if you, if you start practicing being grateful for your spouse, like, re, like thanking God for your husband or your wife on a daily basis, if you start doing that, you will discover, and it might be small initially, just a, a little, little warmth of emotion, like, oh man, I'm grateful, I'm so thankful for my wife. The wife who feels like she's lost respect for her husband, man, if you begin treating him as though you respect him, and I know this sounds funny, but if you, if you just begin to act as though you do respect him, you, you watch what happens. The guy who says he doesn't love his wife anymore needs to start treating her as if he loves her. The feelings will start to follow your actions. That is the way we are designed. It's not feelings first, then actions. We get it totally backwards. And it, it sounds funny to our modern ears. You know, you're not being your authentic self. You know, whatever that is, what does that even mean? I don't know. But in fact, when a Christian husband doesn't love his wife like Christ, he's not being true to his true self. Your tr if you are born again, your true self is a self created in the image of Jesus. When a Christian wife disrespects her husband, she's not being true to her real self. She's being disingenuous. American historian Edmund Morgan, in a book titled American Slavery, American Freedom, wrote, before the establishment of slavery, Southerners in their private journals and letters did not speak condescendingly of people because their skin was black. After slavery was established, however, they began to use racist language towards black people. In other words, people did not enslave blacks because they hated them. Quite to the contrary, they hated them because they had enslaved them. Listen, your lack of love or your lack of respect in your marriage is just feeding your hatred, your discontent, and your resentment. It's all it's doing. Our feelings will follow our actions, and until we come to realize that this is how God created us, we're gonna have great difficulty growing into the kind of person that God wants to grow us into. So, husbands, wives, we've gotta fight for our marriages. It's the good fight. We've gotta humble ourselves. And not, not be a peacekeeper, <laughs> but a peacemaker. Make peace. Face the issues. 
And if you did something wrong, confess it, humble yourself. If you haven't done something wrong, don't use an apology as a manipulation tool. And wives, your husband is your head. It's just a fact. And you would be wise to respect that and to respect him. Let's pray. Lord, your word, it uh, has sharp edges on it with which to cut down to bone and marrow, even getting down to where our thoughts reside and our intentions, motives. And so it's good surgery So my prayer, Lord, for us this morning and next week, Lord, as we just continue to really lean into what it means to fight for our families, Lord, in a, in a culture that, that is so derogatory towards something so glorious and so amazing. So, Lord, may our hearts be open. May you find in us plowed up soil and not hardened, crusty hearts. And, Lord, I pray for those that have maybe been just kind of hopeless about it and feeling like, ah, this can never change. I can never change. I'm stuck. I'm imprisoned. God, could, could you just remind them who you are? Could you remind them that, that there's exactly nothing too hard for you? Nothing. And Lord, I believe that, that right at this moment, that you, you are ready to give someone a breakthrough. Maybe like you gave me, which resulted in me just being broken and devastated and undone by my own blindness and hardness of heart. God, would you grant to your people today repentance? In just a moment, we're gonna make our way to the communion table and contend with the greatest act of humility and courage and love that the world has ever known or ever will know. And Jesus, our Lord, who came down out of his glory in heaven,
loved us to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, in Philippians 2, let this same mind be in you, husband, wife, that was in Jesus. Though he was equal with God and thought it not something he needed to grasp, but he took the form of a servant. Let your heart break over your sin this morning. Let it break. Stop digging in your heels and justifying your hardness. You can make your way to the communion table now.